Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for coming this afternoon to the kindness of strangeness reframing Tennessee Williams at 100. My name, as Travis told you, is Joe E. <laughs> Jeffries, uh, and I'm going to be leading you through this afternoon. We have a lot to accomplish in about two hours, so uh, let's get underway. Uh, this event is the inaugural kickoff of the Senate the Tennessee Williams Centennial here in New York City, uh, gathering people today on stage who knew Tennessee Williams, who worked with Tennessee Williams. There are also two other programs in this series. Both will take place here at the museum. Next Saturday, we have a panel of directors who have worked with Tennessee Williams' work, including Elizabeth LeCompte from the Wooster Group, whose View Carré is soon coming up here in New York City. Uh, Moises Kaufman will be joining us uh, from the virtual world. Moises has uh, one arm coming up. We also have uh, Travis Chamberlain joining us on that panel. Travis, as you know, directed Green Eyes. And we have David Herskovitz joining us on that panel. And that will be hosted by Andy Horwitz next week upstairs on the seventh floor. Then on the 22nd, we are back here in this room for a scholars panel discussing Tennessee Williams' queer representations of sex and gender. And on that panel, we have some of the panelists here with me today. I will again be hosting that panel. We have Thomas Keith, who uh, is an editor at New Directions, joining us, and Annette Sadek, who uh, actually edited Green Eyes. Uh, also on that panel will be David Kaplan and David Savron. So we have a whole uh, line of events coming up uh, to celebrate and explore the life, work, and legend of Tennessee Williams. Uh, what we're going to do here today is uh, very simple and very quick. Uh, first, I'm going to run you through very quickly Tennessee Williams' life, because I want you to start thinking about how the people that I'm going to bring on stage fit into that timeline. When you're dealing with someone who would have been 100 years old this year, the selection of people that actually knew or worked with them, of course, begins to uh, dwindle and wane. So we're going to... Uh, I want you to get this stuff on a timeline, is what I'm just trying to suggest to you. Uh, next, uh, we are going to uh, introduce and bring up the people one by one today, our speakers. The speakers will uh, then tell their individual stories, how they met Tennessee, how they knew Tennessee, how they worked with Tennessee. And then we will open the floor, because I know that there are people out here who knew or worked with Tennessee. And so we will then uh, open the floor for discussion as to uh, other stories that might just magically be in the room right now. Uh, we did have the option here of going virtual for this panel, but I decided that I wanted to see if I could gather the people who knew and worked with Tennessee Williams who are in New York City today and could get in this room, right? Because uh, opening the virtual closet is, well, just too much, right? So I wanted this to be a community kind of event. So that's what we're doing today is this community kind of event. Uh, and lastly, like I said, we will open the floor for conversation, discussions, other stories, memories, recollections, recollections and of course, a uh, full-out dish, right? We're going to go all sorts of places today, I hope. Um, so let me just quickly run you through Tennessee Williams' life. Uh, Tennessee Williams was born in 1911, thus the centenary, right? Thus the centennial. Uh, born in where in Mississippi? Anybody know? Columbus, right? And right here we are in uh, Columbus Circle, right? Uh, Columbus is a big tourism spot this year. Columbus, Mississippi is a big spot this year, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in 1918, the family moves to St. Louis, where some of you may become more aware of Tennessee Williams' uh, story and biography. 27, he publishes his first piece, which is, I understand it, is a um, 
is a uh, answer to a, uh, a magazine contest kind of a thing. And then shortly thereafter, he also publishes a piece of science fiction writing. I believe that this piece of writing, this first piece of writing, is actually kind of like a transgendered piece of writing because he replies. As I'm not sure about this. But uh, next we get a uh, science fiction piece of writing. Uh, 37, he... Uh, takes a playwriting course at the University of Iowa. Uh, this is, to, uh, um, we are going completely multimedia in this room today, as you can tell, so uh, one more multimedia effect, lasers. Uh, this is Tennessee Williams here, right? Laser show too, right? Um, at the University of Iowa, graduates from the University of Iowa. Uh, 39, submits his, group, his a group of scripts to the group theater which is where the name Tennessee comes about, right? He submits them under the name Tennessee. And one of those scripts, some of you may have heard of, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. Uh, they win a prize, and this prize and the recognition uh, leads him to have his literary agent, Audrey Wood, who stays with him for many, many years. Uh, 1940, at Audrey Wood's uh, request, he moves to New York City, and Tennessee Williams is itinerant to say the best. He lives and moves everywhere. He does not put down roots too firmly, right? So he's moving, traveling constantly in his life. Uh, joins a playwriting seminar here at the New School while he's in New York City. Uh, John Gassner, those of you who know, is leading that playwright seminar. Uh, 1943, Audrey Wood secures him a deal with MGM out in Hollywood. Uh, this is a picture of Tennessee and Audrey Wood together. Uh, he goes out there, and this is where he writes a screenplay called The Gentleman Caller, which is rejected by MGM. It is not the script that they wanted but it eventually becomes The Glass Menagerie. This is Lorette Taylor in The Glass Menagerie, opens in Chicago in 1944, soon opens here in New York City. Right? Terrible uh, weather conditions, storm in Chicago at the time. A couple of critics managed to get the piece noticed, and eventually it moves here and wins him the accolades and praise. Uh, 1946, he moves to New Orleans with Pancho Rodriguez y Gonzalez. Uh, one of my favorite Tennessee Williams artifacts out there involves Pancho Rodriguez y Gonzalez. Uh, Pancho and Tennessee would go to a penny arcade in New Orleans and record cardboard records, right? They recorded cardboard records of themselves reading dialogue from streetcars. He was writing it. Those cardboard records are held at the public library here in New York City. Not many places can play a cardboard record, but uh, the public library has some facilities for that, and they have been digitized at this point also. Uh, in 47, he meets this guy, Frank Merlo, who's going to become a serious companion and relationship for the rest of his life. Uh, streetcar opens, wins the Pulitzer. 48, uh, One Arm and Other Stories. Many people don't think about Tennessee Williams as the writer of anything really other than plays. Uh, Tennessee Williams wrote a massive body of work. There are 30-some full-length plays, 70-some uh, one-act plays, a thick volume of short stories, poetry, occasional pieces. It's a large body of work. I just want you to keep in your mind, you know, these uh, short stories and other pieces. Uh, 1950, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, his first novel is published. He writes several novels as well. Uh, the Glass Menagerie, the first version, the film version, if you've never seen the first film version of The Glass Menagerie, find yourself a historical oddity and watch that sometime. Uh, the Rose Tattoo in 51, Streetcar, the film version of that is released, which I'm sure many of you have seen. Uh, Summer and Smoke opens in New York City, Camino Real, Hard Candy, which is another collection of uh, short stories. Many of his short stories are really, well, very erotic and sexual, right? You can get away with doing things in a short story that you can't necessarily get away with on stage, and definitely not in a mainstream film. 
But in the short stories, you might find material that would surprise you. Uh, 1956, Baby Doll, the film which is condemned by the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, 19, a C rating, right? <laughs> Gotta love it, right? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if anybody saw or noticed the, uh, there's a video clip. Uh, Mike Wallace asked Tennessee Williams about Baby Doll being condemned and what Cardinal Spelman had said. And he says, did anybody see that, the video clip in the top here? Um, it was mixed in. Uh, his response is something to the effect of, uh, I do not want to offend a distinguished member of the clergy by replying. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an astounding little statement. Uh, in 1962, uh, Frank Merlot goes into the hospital in August. Uh, Frank Merlot is dead by September. Uh, 1963, the milk train doesn't stop here anymore, which is opening again on Broadway. What, preview started yesterday, day before, right? Uh, 1966, slapstick tragedy. And this becomes a part of the Tennessee Williams career that most people do not think about, do not know, is this kind of 60s, 70s, and 80s period. Uh, this is the period of his career that I'm very specifically interested in, is this late period. Uh, and uh, several of the guests up here today also have involvement and interest in this late period. Uh, 1968, one of my favorite Tennessee Williams plays, The Seven Descents of Myrtle, uh, which is turned into a film that is released in 1970 called The Last of the Mobile Hot Shots, uh, released the same year that he supposedly is writing Green Eyes with uh, Lynn Redgrave. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an oddity. It's one of the few Tennessee Williams plays that I think actually gets kinkier in the film instead of getting watered down. Gore Vidal writes the adaptation. He really does some odd twists that Tennessee doesn't necessarily do in the stage play. Uh, 1969, Dakin arranges for his brother to be converted to Catholicism and also commits him to uh, Barnes Mental Institution in St. Louis. Uh, at the same time, Tokyo is playing in, uh, a streetcar is playing in Tokyo. So, what we're beginning to see, uh, the pattern in Tennessee Williams' life is, yes, he's writing new work. People are not necessarily accepting this new work, but the revivals of his work are continuing worldwide, the revivals of the older work, right? Uh, 1970, Green Eyes, the play that this uh, programming today serves as the companion work for. Uh, Green Eyes is written around 1970. It is not produced or published during his lifetime. Uh, he has the break with Audrey Wood, the agent that he landed way back in 1971. Uh, 1972, Small Craft Warning. We're going to have uh, a person up here today talking specifically about a connection to Small Craft Warning, the only play that Tennessee Williams acts in, right? Acts in his own play. Uh, 1975, the second novel. Anybody the name, know the name of the second novel? Moisey in the World of Reason. Very good. Uh, and the memoirs, which some of you may have read, are also published. The memoirs are still astounding. They were astounding. Uh, the Red Devil Battery Sign, another of my favorite Tennessee Williams plays, is also in 75. Uh, 77, View Carré, which the Wooster Group is getting ready to uh, unleash on New York next month. Uh, 1975, The Glass Menagerie is revi uh, revived on Broadway. Like I said, at this point in his life, he's writing a lot of new material, but it's the old material that is being done. People are not accepting this new material. Uh, 76, he's a... Uh, a juror at the uh, Cannes Film Festival. Uh, in October of that month, he's ejected from a hotel in San Francisco. This is, again, not uncommon. I'm just trying to show you the range of things that are happening in his life. Uh, 1977, he leases an apartment here at Manhattan Plaza in New York City. 
1978, I believe, is the year that Mitch Douglas becomes his agent at ICM. 1979, he is honored by the Kennedy Center along with this crowd of people. You know they had a good time with Martha Graham and Ella Fitzgerald at all of the parties for the uh, Kennedy Center. Uh, here's a picture of him in Key West. Uh, they opened the Tennessee Williams Performing Arts Center in 1980 in Key West. His mother, Edwina, dies at the age of 95. This Williams family is a long-lived family. And as you know, that is genetic, right? Uh, if what happened at the Hotel Elysee had not happened at the Hotel Elysee, Tennessee Williams probably would not be as dead as he is, if you know what I mean, right? Uh, 1981, A House Not Meant to Stand, which is the last full-length work produced during his lifetime. That play was originally produced in Chicago, has never been produced in New York, and it is just receiving a West Coast production. Uh, something Cloudy, Something Clear, which is the last play produced um, during his lifetime. Now then, uh, 1983, February 24th, anybody know the date? He dies at the Hotel Elysee in New York City. Uh, there are various things around this. Uh, the paper reports many people widely believe that he chokes to death on a bottle cap. Uh, his brother Dakin, however, believes that he was murdered for reasons that we can go into if you want to. Uh, murder, suicide, something happened, he's dead, natural causes. Uh, he is buried in St. Louis. There's the front of his uh, tombstone. And there's the back, or there's the back, and there's the front, whichever way. It says both of his names on there. Um, I don't know if the video clip you saw uh, played in the beginning. Uh, Tennessee request in one of those video clips that he be buried at sea next to Hart Crane. Well, near Hart Crane. His bones be placed at sea near the bones of Hart Crane, right? But he is buried in St. Louis. So uh, post-Tennessee now. Post-Tennessee. What's happened uh, since Tennessee Williams passing? Well, uh, in 1984, the Tennessee Williams New Orleans Literary Festival began and is still going strong in New Orleans. Uh, I'll be there as well as some of the other panelists uh, this coming March to celebrate the centennial. 1986, the collected short stories are published with the introduction by Gore Vidal, which is a thick volume of short stories. 1995, Tom, the Unknown Tennessee Williams, the Lyle Leverage biography, which is a substantial monumental biography of Williams, is published up to a certain year, right? And now uh, John Lahr is picking up and doing volume two of that set. Uh, 1996, his sister Rose dies, who many of you may know was lobotomized and institutionalized for, well, most of her life, uh, but she lives a substantial period of time, as you see, after Tennessee. Most people don't think about how long she lives after him. Uh, 1999, not about Nightingale's opens on Broadway. Uh, go back to that award that he won in the 1930s when he changed his names, plays submitted to the group theater. This was one of those works, right? And that is the last original Tennessee Williams piece to be presented on Broadway to date, right? Uh, and let's see, 2006, the Provincetown Tennessee Williams Theater Festival. 2008, Green Eyes is published, uh, edited by these two people sitting right here, Annette Sadek and Thomas Keith for uh, New Directions, and it premieres at the Provincetown Theater Festival. Uh, his brother Dakin dies in 2008, so that's now the last of the immediate kind of Williams line. Uh, 2010, Green Eyes has its New York City premiere in a production directed by Travis Chamberlain, currently sold out, but playing at the Hudson Hotel nearby. And this is a photograph of that production taken by this gentleman right here in the front row, uh, Vess Pitts. What are they doing there, Vess? <laughs> What's going on, folks? 
Uh, and and that, that brings us to today, the uh, centenary. Uh, thousands of things going on for the centenary. Like I said, this event is just kick-starting the centenary. Uh, there's an event similar to this happening at the 92nd Street Y in February. Uh, productions opening up all across the country, left, right, and center. The annual Tennessee Williams Festivals. So this is the centennial, ladies and gentlemen. It's the centenary. If you want your dose of Tennessee Williams, this is the year you're going to get it one way or the other, right? Okay. So uh, this is the uh, rough timeline that I'm going to kind of keep behind our panelists' heads so that you know uh, where things kind of might fall on this line, just so you get an idea of what this graphic is. Oh, this uh, blue splotch, this is an Eves Klein piece, and of course, Eves Klein blue, and it's called Homage du Tennessee Williams. I just love this piece. I just, you know. Um, so uh, my name is Joe E. Jeffries. Um, <laughs> I forget sometimes. I have to remind myself. Uh, I teach dramatic literature, theater, history, what we now call theater studies, at New York University Tisch School of the Arts Drama Department. Uh, I also create a program here in New York City called Drag Show Video Verite. I go out and document the drag community of New York City and put together these wild video mashups that uh, premiere every year at Lincoln Center at the uh, New York Public Library for the Performing Arts there in June and then play around town. So... Uh, First, I'm going to uh, introduce our first guest and bring him out, David Schweitzer. David Schweitzer has been uh, directing for 40 years, both nationally and internationally, theater and opera. This is an image that David is going to talk to us about eventually. David has a story to tell us about this particular event. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome David Schweitzer. <laughs> Next, I'm going to bring out Jeremiah Newton. Jeremiah Newton, this is a photograph of Jeremiah and Candy Darling. Jeremiah was a dear, dear friend of Candy Darling and has a connection to Tennessee through Candy and specifically also through the production of Small Craft Warning. So Jeremiah, come on out here, please. Before and after. Before and after. <laughs> and last but not least, I'd like to bring out Mitch Douglas. Mitch Douglas was Tennessee Williams' literary agent for the last years of Tennessee Williams' life and has also represented people including Arthur Miller, uh, worked with autobiographies of Shelley Winters, and uh, Mitch will be talking to us about this image as well as other things related to Tennessee Williams. So Mitch, come on out. Okay, so uh, this is our group. Thank you all very much for coming and uh, participating and playing along today on I Remember Tennessee. Uh, we're going, this, this is uh, Tennessee Williams' realness, ladies and gentlemen. That's what this is. This, this is the connection. This is the past. This is the stories going down from one generation, one group of people to the next. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, David. So David, talk to us about this picture behind your head, how this uh, relates to your connection to Tennessee? Well, I believe that must have been in uh, Key West uh, when uh, Edwina was visiting. Yep. And uh, that's when I met Tennessee Williams, uh, 1971. Uh, I went down to Key West. I was in college. I went down to Key West in search of drugs. <laughs> With some pals of mine, we drove down. Uh, 
And uh, there was this, this vague rumor that they were, uh, we were, we were all theater crazy and, and one of them had been to Key West before and knew someone who knew someone who knew Tennessee Williams and it was, yeah, yeah, right. We, it's just fun to go, go to Key West. In those days it was not like it is now, it was, you know, gun runners and drugs. Uh, and we uh, collapsed on the beach and uh, an older gentleman walked by <laughs> with a lot of dogs uh, including a few that were clearly uh, owned by Tennessee. You could tell they had a kind of nervous <laughs> energy about them. And uh, uh, our friend, who was part of the group I drove down there, I, I was the one with the car, uh, said, uh, I've seen that guy before. He's one of the people that takes care of Tennessee Williams. And he jumped up, and there was much talk, and they looked back over this group of cute kids, and we were lying around on the beach, and someone had a guitar, and you know, we, we were perfect. Uh, and uh, we got invited to a party at Tennessee's house, at his little tract house uh, in uh, Key West, and it turned out to be a party for Edwina, who was visiting. And uh, I put on a suitable outfit from 1971. I think it was basically... It would have been a suitable outfit in 1971 <laughs> for a party at Tennessee Williams' house. Uh, kind of see-through lace. There you go. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we walked in the door, and he was out of his mind with nerves at his mother's visit and whether or not <laughs> she was comfortable. And... She was propped up in the middle of the main room of his house on sort of a stool, <laughs> swathed in this, like, seemed like 20-foot white feather boa that some <laughs> local queen had given her. Um, and she, she looked like a snowbird. She, <laughs> and... She made me nervous, too, but she really made him nervous and everyone at the party nervous. And we didn't speak to him too much, but we waited it out the way kids do. Um, and uh, finally, um, seemingly, I'm not sure how it happened, but everyone had left except for us. And he was happy about that. Uh, and he asked if we would like to... Uh, hear him read some of his poems. <laughs> and uh, I, for one, thought, are you out of your mind? Do you need to ask? Uh, but I said something calmer than that. And he read some poems. We literally gathered it at his feet. I mean, it was like that. It was me and my, my, my roommate from college, uh, two boys and and two, and. and and, and two girls. And I was the only one that was gay, actually. And the first one of us he noticed was this beautiful girl, this, uh, a drama student from, from Yale, who was sort of a full-figured girl with long red hair, sort of looked like Mama Cass with this beautiful, beautiful face. He turned to her. She said, you're extraordinarily beautiful. You're like a Viking Madonna. She'll, a compliment she'll never forget. Uh, and it wasn't until and then he started he, he got he was 
fading. And, and I, I nicely brought up young man, even under the influence of the newly acquired drugs. Uh, and I wrangled the group and we left. And it was only at the door that he turned to me and said, have I missed you all evening? And I said, well, I, I, I've been here. I'm very happy to be here, very excited about it. He said, well, now I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I left. I thought, well, that's great. That's a story. Tennessee Williams was excited that I was at his house. Uh, um, but there's more. There's more. <laughs> a, a, f a few days later, I'll try and edit this a little bit. Uh, uh, I don't talk about it. I mean, I've never written about it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to now because um, uh, the next time I saw Tennessee was at his birthday. It was his 60th, and he was being made an honorary conch. Which is what you're looking at back here. Fisherman. This is the mayor yeah. making him an honorary conch. And... Um, uh, everyone in town was invited to the party. You, di you didn't need to be invited or not invited. It was like a town event. Uh, and so um, with the total arrogance of a like, just-turned-21-year-old, tw I, knowing the birthday was coming up, and of course I had brought my electric typewriter along on this trip, banged out a poem... <coughs> to thank Tennessee for inviting us to his house and slipped it under his door. I didn't have the nerve to actually bring it to him. And so uh, then the next night was the birthday, and we were standing at the fence that the townspeople were behind, and he, everybody, were up, were up on a sort of dias in the town square, uh, and he was surrounded by all these people, uh, and we were just standing there, and, and, and he seemed to be looking over at our group, and I gave a little wave. And uh, in a moment which I, I mean, no one would ever forget, I certainly will never, ever forget, he got up from the table and walked slowly across the town square and extended his hand, and uh, I stepped over the fence and he said, uh, I wanted to thank you for the poem. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I, 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 I'm embarrassed, and I was almost too embarrassed to write it, but uh, I felt like I had to express somehow how excited I was. He said, yes, well, perhaps you care to join me at this event. I could use a little new energy. <laughs> and I, I said, well, um, there, there aren't any spaces at the table uh, that I can see. And he said, oh, baby, there will be. <laughs> and he walked me across the courtyard and sat me down next to him at the table. Uh, uh, and I spent the rest of my spring break with him in his house. And then... And then you uh, traveled with him to yeah, Europe. Yeah, and then I thought that would be it. And it was an uh, extraordinary time because I was, I, was I was just young enough for the whole thing to be amazing. 
I wasn't a little bit older and I would have been on a career path and it would have been too interesting that he was who he was and he but I didn't I mean I knew I idolized him but I was also this kid. And tell me about this uh, uh, the poem. Do you have a copy of this or is it surfaced in some archive at this point? Uh, uh, Can you recite a few verses? No. Uh, but what happened next is that he... <laughs> has it surfaced somewhere? Do we know? Has, has this poem surfaced? No comment. Uh, Austin, Harvard, Columbia? No comment. Um, there, uh, uh, I got a letter a couple... And then I thought that would be it. And that was life-altering experience. But then I got a letter from him, which I do have a copy of, typed, um, uh, came to my uh, uh, room in college, which inviting me to join him on a trip to Europe that summer. Uh, his first time kind of up and out in a long time. It, he'd had some pretty... And this experience. is just previous to small craft warnings, right? Is yes, that, it was. Right? Yeah, this is sort of a hidden summer. He was invited to uh, to uh, recite his poetry in several major uh, uh, poetry festivals, including one at Queen Elizabeth Hall in London. And he was extremely excited about that because he never thought he was taken seriously enough as a poet. And the others who were on this roster were like W.H. Auden and Stephen Spender and Pier Pasolini, all these people that were alive at that time. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we went on the QE2. Uh, my uh, uh, brother, who had just gotten back from a, from a term in, in Vietnam uh, and was a little apprehensive about me taking this trip, showed up in his full-dress Marine uniform. <laughs> to kind of be sure everything was safe. <laughs> Tennessee so, loved that. I, I told my family I was traveling as his secretary. So um, you didn't have any... Uh, did Green Eyes ever come up at that point in time? Because this would have been right about the time he was writing Green Eyes. I know. Seems. We talked a lot. I, I questioned him about things that I'd seen, of course. I was obsessed with Milk Train. Which you go on to direct a production. Which I of. went on to direct the production, which was sort of the the uh, uh, birthing of this Broadway production. I I directed it with with, with Olympia Dukakis at at, at uh, Williamstown a couple of years ago. David has so directed many uh, of Williams's late works, uh, including what's the the half of slapstick tragedy that oh, I can never pronounce. Gennadius Froilein. There you go. Thank you. Um, as well as the milk train, and yeah. David and I are connected on a project. We, I am the dramaturg. David is the director for Tennessee Williams' last unpublished and unproduced play right. called *In Mask, Outrageous and Austere*. Right. Uh, which I'm I'm somewhat haunted by the fact that I I I find myself in charge of this extraordinary piece, which no one has seen, and that we are we have uh, uh, producers who are very dedicated to it to it having a, uh, um, um, a big production, hopefully a Broadway production. Um, and I am exactly the age now that he was when we met on his birthday in, uh, on March 26th, uh, 1971. Uh, I'm going to move on, then we'll yeah, come back. Course. I'm going to move to uh, Jeremiah. Thank you very much for uh, sharing that, David. Thank you. Uh, this is... <laughs> Said, this is a photograph of Jeremiah Newton and Candy Darling on the beach here. Uh, 
Langdon, if we could please play the small craft move. Uh, Jeremiah is going to talk to us about a production that Tennessee Williams acted in called Small Craft Warnings that Candy Darling also goes and acts in. The first little clip here is uh, a kind of front stage view of Small Craft Warnings. Then I'm going to show you some footage from a documentary that Jeremiah is involved with that has some serious backstage footage. But first, just kind of an introduction to the play Small Craft Warnings. This is from the A&E biography of Tennessee Williams, uh, which they broadcast during Troubled Geniuses Week. So uh, if we oh could play God. that clip, please. A&E's <laughs> look at After years of writing nothing but flops, Tennessee Williams was ready to try again at the age of 61. His newest play, Small Craft Warnings, was staged at a tiny theater in downtown Manhattan. The publicity campaign included a press conference that was painful to watch because of Williams' obvious drunkenness. Beautiful, right? Uh, so, Jeremiah, uh, talk to us about how you uh, come I, across I, I Tennessee. I was in the audience. For you that. were in the audience I at this press conference, right? That, yeah. Would and, you say um, that he was clearly, obviously drunk? Is that a correct? He was, and think? the expression on Candy's face. This is the first time I've seen this footage. Mm. She's very nervous. She was very nervous. Mm. She didn't know what would happen. That creature over there, that yeah. woman. Yeah. Uh, made Candy's life a living hell. But, What's um, that actress's name? I'm sorry. Helena Carroll, I think. Thank you. Okay, I was um, She. I don't know if she's alive anymore. What a bag she was. <laughs> uh, told you we were going to get dish up here today. Told you. Told but you. I mean, what happened was that uh, Candy Darling was my very good friend, and I adored her. And she said to me one day, she was staying with Sam Green, an art dealer, and she said, who would you like to meet most of all in the world? I said, gee, Tennessee Williams. I grew up as a boy reading his plays, and the movies were out. And you know, she said, well, let's see what I can do. And a few nights later, I went to dinner, and there was Tennessee Williams. And he said, well, <laughs> you wanted to meet me. Well, here I am. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, gosh, this is amazing, Tennessee Williams. But he was there because. His play, Small Craft Warnings, had opened up at the Truck and Warehouse Theater in East Village. And it wasn't doing well. And he wanted to move the play to the new theater on 53rd Street between uh, Lexington and, and 3rd Avenue. And that was the theater. The building was Arthur, the discotheque was in that building. And uh, he wanted Candy to play the part of Violet who was a sort of a nymphomaniac who did her best job under a table. And um, <laughs> so anyway, um, Candy wanted to play this. This was the biggest thing she had gotten up to that point. And Tennessee juiced her up and said, you know, you'll be perfect, honey. I know you'll be perfect. There was a problem. There were the actors. And they resented Candy, especially that woman. Um, 
they resented her because she was taking the part away from someone who created the part off-Broadway. Uh, and the papers are writing things about this feud. The actress, I think her name was Cherry Davis, um, she wasn't very happy with Candy. And then the play closed at the Truck and Warehouse and moved to um, the new theater. And Candy went into rehearsal for, I think, a week or two. And I used to, um, I used to uh, stand up in the balcony uh, in the, on the catwalk and look down at her when they were doing the rehearsals. And she saw the play many, many times with Cherry Davis, too. So the play was already running there, but she was stepping into the part. And I remember the newspapers saying, a transvestite stepping into the part of Violet, how perfect, only five blocks from Bloomingdale's. Yeah, yeah those of you who do not know, Candy Darling was a transgendered Warhol transgender. superstar. Mm -hmm. And um, so she went into, it, went into the play. The actors didn't want them, her with them. The actresses didn't want her around. So she had her own dressing room, which was in a broom closet. And Tennessee said to me, I'm going to make those actors' life a living hell. I am going in the part of Doc. Doc was a friendly abortionist who, uh, he would come on stage with a copy of the New York Times. Now, this took place in Key West. But he would bring a copy of the Times, like that, spread it across the bar for the scene, and completely ad-libbed. And the actors were like twisting in the wind. They were like, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. And finally, he would give them the cue, and they would jump in. <laughs> and he would constantly rewrite. I, would, I remember trash bags full of scripts that he would constantly change and rewrite. And the play lasted, I'm not even sure how long. Two months, two and a two half months, months. Yeah. somewhere in there, yeah. Candy uh, did the cover of After Dark magazine. She got a lot of publicity. Tennessee was very, very good to her. He would come to the dressing room, the broom closet, and sit with her and talk to her. And she was very gracious, because this was the first genuine thing that somebody had given her. She was used to doing Off-Off-Broadway with Jackie Curtis, films with Andy Warhol and comedy, but this was the first serious thing. And he promised that he would write a play for her. And that promise, unfortunately, was never kept. But um, uh, she was wonderful, and he was wonderful, too. I recall that um, some act, someone in the audience was talking during a performance, and he stopped the play. He said, sir, get out of the theater. And the, the, the man said, no. And he jumped off the stage, chased the actor and chased the um, the uh, man out of the theater, and then came back and then went into character again. <laughs> so it was it was quite something, and I I, I saw this and I, I was I was hysterical. I was, everyone was hysterical, but he was such an amazing man. I, I loved him as we all did. Um, he was so gracious. He encouraged young people. He loved having young people around, and I don't fault him for anything. He had friends around him that were terrible. Some of them were terrible people. And um, they ate him up and spit him out. But um, anyway, I can go on and on. Good, uh, uh, thank you, Jeremiah. I'm going to take this opportunity now to show you a clip from Jeremiah's documentary, Beautiful Darling, based on the life of Candy Darling. Uh, this has some amazing 
backstage. This, this, this is the uh, beautiful darling move. Uh, this has some amazing backstage footage at Small Craft Warnings, as well as some uh, Jeremiah conducted audio uh, interviews with many, many people who knew Candy yeah. Darling throughout yeah. the years and did one with Tennessee Williams. We'll hear some of that audio material in this. And also we'll see a little piece of commentary from uh, Penny Arcade, Penny who knew uh, Candy Darling out there. See a little piece of commentary in this clip on that. So um, we could roll uh, the beautiful Darling move. Did you have any difficulties with Candy yeah. playing on one of the producers stopped uh, speaking to me. How did you feel that uh, Candy related to the other people on the flight? She had a separate dressing room because she couldn't use the women's dressing room and she couldn't have it use the men's dressing room. <laughs> so she had a little separate dressing room of her own. I remember. It was all cluttered for a job. Yeah. I used to enjoy sitting with her in that. It was always a pleasant person to be with. Here Candy gets dangled her dream, which how could it ever happen? How could it ever happen that her dream was coming true? She was with Tennessee Williams. And then all of a sudden, it turned out to be this ephemeral thing, and the carnival had moved on. Take down the picture, Jeremiah. This is my life. Get her down. She's getting out. Get her out of here. We don't need her in this theater anymore. And a close-up of this. Who is it? Who is it? This is a... There we go. I just want to say the quality of that is so poor because it had been in my closet for 30 years. And, but you're um, it exists. That's the amazing yeah, I mean, that, thing. You're seeing something which is a, a glimpse into the, in the past on this early is, video that was Yeah, restored. this is reel-to-reel videotape. It's amazing that this... Exist, right? This is truly yeah. remarkable. And thank you, Jeremiah, for uh, thank you. capturing that. Um, I want to show you one other thing. Jeremiah hasn't even seen this. Uh, I don't know if you can see that behind you, Jeremiah, there. Uh, this is an image that Candy Darling would frequently hand color and give out to people. And this is a hand colored version of this, serves as the poster for Beautiful Darling. Uh, this one, if you can see, uh, I just love this image. Uh, to Tennessee, oceans of uh, tons of love and oceans of kisses from Candy. Uh, thank you for loving me. And then I love this in the corner. Forget me not. not. <laughs> right? This, ladies and gentlemen, is held by the archive at Columbia University. <laughs> Tennessee Williams' personal things that were in his home. He had this, kept this in his home. That tells me a lot about how uh, he viewed and respected Candy Darling. Right? That this piece is in that collection of papers. Uh, so thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, going to move on to uh, Mr. Mitch Douglas now. Uh, Mitch, this is a photo of you with Tennessee, and I understand that uh, you tried to kill Tennessee. <laughs> that, uh, Tennessee thought you were trying to uh, murder him. This was, this was rather late in our relationship. Later, later. <laughs> uh, 
No, so he uh, where do you want to start with us today? I don't Fitch? know where to start. This photograph, by the way, was taken in Chicago at the Goodman Theater. And I think we were working on what became a house stuff into stand. So this it is was like, uh, oh gosh, what was it called? It had several a different... P- a play, this, it was the called some, some Problems with the Mousselage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were trying it out. This was, so this was directed birth- by Gary Tucker, that yes, version. Yeah. Yes, and uh, this was Tennessee's birthday. And we shared the same birthday. It was the same day, by the way. And, uh, you know, this was one of the happy festive occasions with <laughs> Tennessee. And there were festive occasions and there were not such festive occasions. <laughs> But no, the story about the murder happened very, very late in the late in the day for me. But uh, ICM was owned and run by a gentleman by the name of Marvin Josephson. And one day I had a call from uh, Marvin saying, "I've had a rather distraught phone call from Tennessee, and I want to ask you a question. What's he on?" And I said, "Everything but roller skates." <laughs> <laughs> And Tennessee had taken up with a new young man by the name of Skylar, and he wanted Skylar to write the uh, music for his next play, and that wasn't going over so well. And and Tennessee informed Marvin that he was going to go on television and make make a scandal for ICM because he had evidence that Mr. Mitch Douglas had an undercover deal with Eastern Airlines to put him on a depressurized plane so he would have a heart attack so Mr. Douglas could get all his money. Makes sense to me. Now, I was Tennessee's third agent, and there had, there had, been, there had been long relationships. He was represented by the wonderful Audrey Wood for like 35 years, and had decided that Audrey was trying to kill him, and had told her, you know, Audrey, you've wanted me dead for 10 years, and then decided she had hired a Chicago hitman to kill him and actually moved to an island to get away from that. And then he was taken over by Billy Barnes, who represented him for around 10 years. And then when Billy left the agency, I got a call from uh, Ralph Mann, the president of ICM, saying, Tennessee needs an agent, and would you consider being his agent? And uh, Tennessee didn't know who I was, but he knew another agent there by the name of Milton Goldman, now, Milton was very famous, and Milton represented every famous celebrity, actor, actress in the universe. But he didn't represent writers. And Tennessee, of course, needed a writer's agent. Milton didn't know the first thing about it. So Ralph said, what we will do is we will sign him to Milton and you, and uh, Milton will introduce you, and you will actually do the work. So uh, that's how the relationship started. And the murder scenario was basically how it ended, because... The behavior continued. I saw Marvin two weeks later, and, and he said, well, have you heard from our friend? And I said, no, I haven't heard a word, Marvin, have you? And he said, uh, he said, no, but he said, I will tell you something. He said, we have a responsibility to our clients, but it doesn't include being abused by them. And, uh, but Tennessee had decided that I had joined forces with Audrey Wood, who worked right down the hall, and that on Audrey's behalf, I was going to try to kill him. So he demanded another agent, and there was a meeting, and uh, Milton was told, you go back to Mr. Williams and tell him that, you know, Mr. Douglas is his agent, and he will either continue with Mr. Douglas, or he can go out of his agency and get another representative, which Milton did not do. Instead, he introduced him to a young agent there by the name of Luis Sanjorjo, Mm. and at the end of the day, Marvin said, just let Luis do it. They didn't do it for long, because Tennessee died very shortly after that. And I continued to serve more or less in the background. But that's 
sort of the beginning and sort of the end of what was really a roller coaster ride for about three or four years. So did you represent the, uh, the memoirs and the novel? No, that's right. No, that was before me. Right I, before came, you, right? I came into Tennessee's life when he was in rehearsal for a little jewel box of a play that's never gotten its due, a play called A Lovely Sunday for Criv Kerr, right. mm. which was, yeah, it's a, lov- it's a lovely play and full of just beautiful language. Very small play. It's about two school teachers who li- live together and one is about to... Her announcement to the school principal is about to be engaged, but the roommate has gotten up this Sunday morning and seen in the newspaper that he is engaged to somebody else. And the whole play revolves around her keeping that information from her roommate. And upstairs is a woman who is in a state of terrible depression who's sobbing in the corner of the living room through the play. And into the scene comes another school teacher who Tennessee describes as a predatory bird who's going to spill the beans. It's me. Is Charlotte here? Oh, Charlotte. Charlotte's here. Charlotte's Charlotte Moore, who was brilliant. Moore. One of our brilliant actresses in New Tennessee from the time you were 17. Thank that, you for coming. We're going to be talking with well, that's, Charlotte and, in a bit. And you know the line I'm about to quote, Charlotte? You came in the door, and you're repulsed by the neighbor who's crying in the corner. And Peg Murray, who played Bodie, looked at you and said, Oh, don't worry. She can't hurt you. You can't catch heartbreak if you've got no heart. <laughs> One of the jewel boxes. But that's actually my first experience with Tennessee. I told so you we, there was some we did Tennessee that play. People in the audience. Yeah, and that was, that was the beginning. That was the play. Let's uh, play the move called uh, Metal. Uh, this is a little clip that I think is going to spur uh, a story from Mitch. You're going to see President Carter putting a medal around Tennessee Williams' neck here. <laughs> And Mitch was uh, at the subsequent parties and festivities surrounding this. Williams received honorary degrees, the gold medal for drama of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the nation's highest honor for a civilian, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Tennessee! So there you go. Uh, Mitch, you were at the White House with Tennessee for this. I was. I was, I was with Tennessee twice at the White House. The first was the Kennedy Honors. And please know when I came in the door, Tennessee had not been treated very well. He hadn't had a hit in years, and he was sort of forgotten and, and, and ignored, and the Carters changed that. They gave him the recognition he deserved, he got the Kennedy Honor, and then he got the Medal of Freedom. And the Medal of Freedom was a very nice afternoon festivity. Uh, the, the Award was presented on the lawn at the White House, and then Mrs. Carter said, and now we're going to have lunch, and we'd like for you to come in and have lunch. And uh, we had a table all to ourselves. It was me and Milton Goldman, and Tennessee had brought Rose, who was taken care of by his two country cousins, Stell and Jim Adams, and Maureen Stapleton, and a man we, and we, a man we didn't know. And Stell kept saying she was going to spread her legs and show Jimmy Carter the American flag. <laughs> And Maureen, who was known to tipple a little, had already been tippling. (laughs) And she looked at the wine steward and she said, if you go too far away with that bottle of wine, I'm going to break your fucking arm. (laughs) (laughs) And the first lady's table was right over there and they kept looking over because it was getting quite raucous. But we all knew each other, except there there was this strange man at the table and no one knew who he was. So Maureen finally looked at him and said, well, who the hell are you? And it turned out they had put a cabinet member at each table. 
and he was the Secretary of Defense. And we were in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis. Carter was getting in a helicopter to go someplace with that. And, and Maureen said, well, what the hell are you doing here? So it, it turned out to be quite an afternoon. But Tennessee really was on his best behavior at the but, White but House. But even still, you managed, he managed to sneak somebody in. He had this friend, Skyler, again. Skyler. And he decided at the last minute that he wanted to take Skyler. And I said, you can't just take somebody to the White House, Tennessee. You have to have security clearance. They have to drive us. So I said, well, I'm taking him. So he put, Tennessee, he put Skyler in the back seat of the limo. And he said, now, you've just been down very low when we drive. And you know he got away with it? He got away with it. He Party got crashing. him in. He got him in. You know, and Maureen kept getting drunker the whole time. So when we finally left, you know, we went upstairs. When you go into the dining room, they have the violin section of the Marine Corps Orchestra playing on both sides. Very elegant. And the orchestra was playing at the exit to the White House when we left. Except Maureen went up and said, oh, you, you guys play so fucking well, you know, Moon River. And they did. And they played... <laughs> And they played Moon River, and she and Tennessee started dancing down the halls of the White House. So I went to the sergeant of arms, and I said, can you help me get them out of here? And he said, oh, yes, sir. And they were both a little shorter than I am. And he got these four big, burly Marines who took them under the shoulders and sort of lifted them up. And we got, I got them all in the limo, and they're stuffing Maureen in the car, and Maureen is saying... I want to come back here, and I want to live in a little room up there, and you're not going to let me come back, are you? <laughs> so, the, you know, she made me miss my plane. I came back to New York with her on the train, which is another adventure. Tennessee and his group went to the National Arts Gallery, but it was a lovely, it was really a lovely, if not a so- somewhat frantic afternoon. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, Ben. You want to tell us about uh, this image back here, which you're seeing? Uh, which which corner are we sneaking you into? Uh, yes, that was a, that was a weekend. Can you tell? Yeah, that's the opening of the Tennessee Fine Arts Center oh, in, so this Key is in Key West. Key West. Okay. This is in Key West, and uh, you know, and they did a premiere of a Tennessee Williams play no one has ever heard of called "Will Mr. Merriweather Come Home from Memphis," which is just absolutely huh. dreadful. A fortune teller sits and looks in her crystal ball, and these famous people from history come and look back before we find out if Mary we- Mr. Merriweather, who's left his wife, will ever come back and see him again. But, uh, you know, he, but Tennessee was in a rather festive mood that weekend. The first time I ever went to see him in Key West, and I was there a number of times, was right after my initial meeting with him at the Four Seasons Hotel. He had a, a play called Stopped Rocking, which was a television play. And it was being done for Maureen Stapleton, and it was going to be done on television. And it was going to be directed by a uh, director by the name of Harry Sherman, uh, won a lot of awards. And Harry was flying down, so I flew down the night before. And since I had never been down, Tennessee said, oh, well, you must stay at my house. And I said, no, Tennessee, I don't think I will stay <laughs> at your house. I will stay at, I'll stay at the Pier House or one of the hotels. So I got myself checked in the hotel, and I called Tennessee, and I said, well, I'm here. And I said, should I come over? And Tennessee said, well, we have a problem. He then was involved with a young Vietnam War veteran by the name of Robert Carroll. And he said, well, Robert got stoned last night, and he wrecked the car. And now he's sitting on the porch with a gun in his lap, threatening to blow the brains out of anyone who approaches the house. So I guess you would say we are under siege. (laughs) 
So I didn't go over that night. We waited the next day. Harry Sherman got there. Robert got out of the picture. Now, one thing I, one thing I was determined to do was to stay out of the personal life because I knew all the Tennessee stories, and I knew it could be a circus, and I wasn't going there. But Tennessee always had a group of people, the hangers-on, I call them, surrounding them. And a couple at that time were Dotson Rader, the writer, and his friend Richard Zornick. So they called me over, and they said, now here's what you are to do. You are to go to Robert and tell him that Tennessee will see him and will give him a certain amount. I said, no. I said, I don't do that. I said, I look after Mr. Williams' business. I don't look after the personal things. And Tennessee looked at me, and Tennessee says, oh, Mitch, you're funny. I like you. And that was the end of that conversation. But that was the first time I went to see him in Key West. This was somewhat later. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so now I'm going to uh, just talk with the panel for a moment, and then we're going to open the uh, floor up. So, David, you met Edwina. Mitch, you met Rose uh, Dakin along the way. I met Dakin you a lot. Dakin. I met Dakin a lot, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Dakin was always up to something. He was always running for president. The whole family was mad, you <laughs> must understand. I mean, Rose crops up in all the plays. I mean, she's Laura and Glass Menagerie. And Laura Taylor famously said to Edwina, the first time they ever met, uh, Edwina had gone to see Glass Menagerie, and, and Laura Taylor said, well, Mrs. Williams, how did you like seeing yourself on stage? <laughs> so, and the first reference ever ha I had from, about Edwina, she called Tennessee one morning, in Tennessee said to me, well, mother called this morning from the home. She thought she was in bed with a horse. She must have been thinking of my late father because he was hung like one. <laughs> and Rose, he absolutely adored, I mean, uh, and felt terribly guilty because of she was lobotomized when he wasn't there and wasn't looking. And, uh, you know, the world revolved around Rose. She's in play after play. What is yeah, Rose, um, the sister, if you don't know, was institutionalized in Ossony, not far from here. And uh, she frequently came in with Tennessee when he was in New York City to attend plays, whatnot. Uh, one of the stories that I read, which I thought was great, um, Tennessee was taking Rose and her group of friends to see uh, Barnum. Barnum was opening on Broadway. Nobody knew anything about Barnum. It's a circus musical, right? Uh, Tennessee warned people that if an elephant appeared on stage, not to be alarmed if Rose stood up and saluted it. <laughs> Apparently, she uh, enjoyed elephants, right? <laughs> Who knows? She loved to smoke. And Tennessee she loved to smoke, yeah. She loved Tennessee smoke. Wouldn't, like, wouldn't let her smoke. I remember at the White House, they came by and said, Miss Williams, would you like anything? And she said, yes, I would like a cigarette. And, uh, and they said, Tennessee said, well, you can't have one. And she said, well, in that case, I can't read the menu. I'm the Queen of England, you know. <laughs> yeah, she also thought she was the Queen of England for a while. Um, I'm wondering, uh, among the panelists, if there are any questions that you would like to ask each other about Tennessee Williams in a public forum. Oh, I, I have a, a good Rose story. Um, Give us a Rose story. Uh, maybe you told it to me, and then you can take over. Vasily Voglis and Lady oh. Maria St. Just. There was after Tennessee died, and of course he adored his sister. There was some honor on Broadway, and they had to take Rose, and they fought about taking Rose to see this play. But they ended up both taking Rose in the limousine, and Rose just sat there, didn't say much. They brought Rose to the theater, and there was a show, and it was wonderful. Then Vasily and um, Lady Maria St. Just was in the car going home. They said, you know, something is wrong here. What, what's wrong? They left Rose in the theater. 
They left Rose in their theater, and they had to drive all the way there, back. It took an hour, and the cleaning crew was there. And there's Rose sitting in the middle, very primly, with ramrod straight back, wait, you know, just waiting. If Tennessee had known this, he would have killed them. He would have killed them. Are there any... Uh, go ahead, Mitch. No, this, that, no that, that's not my story, but uh, you mentioned another interesting character in Tennessee's life who is the right honorable Lady Maria St. Just, mm. who was one of Tennessee's friends. She was a failed actress who married nobility. And um, when yeah, Tennessee died, she took time. over as the executor, the executor of Tennessee's estate, which is another indication of how much Tennessee cared for Rose because he stipulated that Maria could be the executor of the estate as long as Rose was alive. <laughs> because he knew that that Maria would covet that job, and she would do everything in her power to keep Rose in tip-top condition. <laughs> the irony is that Maria died before Rose did. She was still taken care of very well. But, you know, that's that's the degree that Tennessee really cared about Rose and her continued welfare. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, Rose dies in 96. Maria dies before. Uh, yeah, Rose was taken extremely good care of. Um, in the, the papers in uh, Austin, there are the medical records, and you, I mean, you just wouldn't believe what's uh, floating around in the papers. There are drawings that Rose did that were uh, sent to various people, kind of these beautiful uh, watercolor pieces that Rose did. Um, and really, I d- it's kind of interesting to me, the Maria St. Just thing, uh, because Maria did not have a high opinion of these later plays. No. And so she kind of kept those, well, she did. She kept them back. Her her and it's only now after her passing yeah. that we are this whole kind of revival of this later material yeah. is becoming interesting. Go ahead, David. She, you no, have a she really kept she it all down. I mean, she was very possessive of him, and uh, she hated me. She hated anyone who he was with um, who might have kind of a, a positive effect on him. <laughs> she only liked mm. people who, who uh, to be with him who were dis- d- destructive and, and brought him down because then uh, yeah. she, by comparison, had a better place in his life. Uh, uh, he used to joke with me about her. Say, oh, Maria's a hoot. You'll like her. I don't take her very seriously. And when he, uh, and, and, and you know, I kept up with him to some extent for the rest of his, his life. And when he left her in charge, sort of, although he didn't know he was going to die then, I always thought it was a kind of joke in a certain way. I always thought it was sort of a dark joke, like, let's just see what happens if Maria's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I think he really did it, though, to, because she, he knew she would look yeah. Right, Rose. I know, for Rose. But, the, yeah. but, but, uh, but anyway, the most important thing, and, and, and you can see it, in, in how his, his work is being done now is that for, for many years, in the years immediately following his death, productions just couldn't happen of this late work. She gave she everyone would, a hard time. She would, just, yeah. she would just stamp them out. And then finally, as soon as she died, we descended <laughs> like locusts on this stuff that we were all... Directors, many directors. I'm not the only one. The ones you mentioned, who are come, who are speaking next week, and so forth. The the late scholars, work is, uh, scholars really didn't right. even have a no. decent access to. Some and of his late work is so expressive, and, and 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 such an extraordinary challenge to put on the stage and to find 
another style for and another way of seeing the uh, and suddenly it was done everywhere you know and is being done everywhere and I uh, uh, he really did I mean the thing about Tennessee that that isn't spoken of that much is his he had such a strong sense of how to use the theater and he was very very interested in pushing the uh, limits of it I have one silly story that's that's personal. Go after, for it. After we got back, uh, he took me to Europe, and then we got back, and then I went back to college, and we were still hanging out a little bit. And I actually started to direct, and I directed in a in a college dining hall. I directed a production of The Glass Menagerie, <laughs> of course. And I called him up, and he was in New York. I said, "Well, everybody would be very pleased if you would come see it." <laughs> He went, oh, baby, I can't drag my ass up there to see that old <laughs> chestnut. <laughs> he said, I hope you're doing it in a highly presentational style, which I indicated should be done, which is always roundly ignored. Yeah. And in fact, I was. Uh, and I, t- <laughs> I told him I was and begged him a little more to come and then didn't think that he would. And on the first night that it was shown, he actually turned up disguised. As what? (laughs) With a big, stupid hat on and (laughs) huge glasses and some guys with him and and cackled in the back row throughout. (laughs) The famous cackle. <laughs> and just and and I I took that as a tribute because I had gone to plays with him in London and all over the world and I knew I mean his his positive response to anything he liked happening on stage was <laughs> you know <laughs> whether it was deeply dramatic or not <laughs> that was just the sign of approval but he also thought that his plays always should be funnier. Than they were generally. Well, Chekhov done. thought his work was funny too, right? right? Everybody thinks their work's a whole lot funnier than, right. you know, everybody <laughs> thinks I'm the funniest thing ever, really. It's just the truth. Um, Jeremiah, Mitch, do you have any stories about the, uh, the laugh? Because I'm very interested in this laugh, this cackle. This is one of the I, features I don't have of a, a cackling one, but I know one of his last plays on Broadway, which he invited me to come see, um, and it was a big production. I don't remember the name of it, but I know it was a matinee, and it was filled with young people from schools. And they talked through the whole, whole play. And at the end, he came out like the wrath of God and started lecturing these teenagers about behaving properly in a the theater. And they just were hooting him and laughing. And he was so angry, I thought he was going to have a stroke. And he clutched the curtain and flung it back and went away, finally. But I thought that was very brave of him, but not wise to... Mitch, do you ever think about the Oh, laugh? audiences would ask him. I had audience members ask him to shut up. Yeah. I remember Criff Kerr, Charlotte. I mean, he, he cackled through Criff through, through Kerr. And I remember <laughs> some audience member turning around and saying, will you please quit laughing like that in Mr. Williams' work? He's a very important playwright. <laughs> Could you uh, play the clip that's called Laugh.Move? Uh, like I said, I've become fascinated by this laugh, so I've been going through archival footage of Tennessee Williams and isolating the laugh. Oh and I've also begun to then deconstruct it a little bit. So uh, this is a little 
two-minute movie that I put together spinning around Tennessee Williams. Laugh. And his laugh was just like a maniacal laugh. <laughs> and he'd be in the theater, I'd be in the theater with him right in the back. And he would, this hyena laugh in the wrong places. <laughs> and people in front would turn around like, how dare you, you know. And sit there and chuckle and laugh. <laughs> and he laughs at crazy laughs. <laughs> <laughs> and the play opens with his monologue, which goes as follows. Yes, I have tricks in my pockets. piece of silliness, but like I said, I've become interested in that sound and what can be uh, done with that piece of media. Um, last, I'd just like to uh, run it by the panel before we open it up to the floor here. Um, how do you think Tennessee Williams is remembered here at the Centennial, will be remembered? What do you think is important to remember about Tennessee Williams at this 100-year marker? I think one thing is how... Uh, uh, because I'm always, uh, I get very interested in, in working in the theater my whole whole life about how it replenishes itself, and how young people keep coming in and staying interested in the theater, and the theater keeps growing through young, new things happening in it, and it continues to amaze me uh, how young people find their way to Tennessee, and how he speaks to them, and how he speaks about how he remains. Uh, provocative, genuinely provocative, uh, 
all this time later and will, I think, always continue to. And I think the centennial, because all these different kinds of work are going to come flowing in and there's, there's no longer some dragon lady forbidding <laughs> things from happening. So we're going to see work from all over the map. We're going to see the, this last play of his that Joe and I are working on. We're going to see, you know, and just the range of it. And I think it's going to finally define him as, uh, as not just the author of The Glass Menagerie and uh, Streetcar Named Desire, you know what I mean? I mean, I think we're going to feel like the real scope of him. Is my Mitch, Jeremiah? Well, this, uh, the nice thing is that Tennessee's reputation has grown and continues to grow, and it's not just the early plays. It's just not the five or six or seven masterworks, but it's the later plays. And I think as we go forward in time, you're going to find that some of the later plays, like A Lovely Sunday for Crib Curl, like Clothes for a Summer Hotel, are just as valid as the earlier plays. Mm. I mean, some of them, I mean, Clothes for a Summer Hotel suffered from a terrible production on Broadway, but it's a lovely, wonderful play. And, uh, you know, and one thing about Tennessee, he was totally disciplined. He wrote every single day. Mm -hmm. He had a studio back at his place in Key West. He was there early in the morning writing, and then he would swim. There's a huge amount of work, and it's quality work. And he really was a poet. I mean, the prose is as valid as the dramatic works. The stage direction in his plays are like reading a novel. I mean, he was a masterful writer, and I think the reputation is simply going to continue to grow, and, you know, I'm so happy and proud for it. Tennessee, thank you. Uh, Tennessee is what I call a graphophilic, meaning basically he was addicted to writing, uh, that every day he had to do this, and this is why we have 30 full-length plays, 71-act plays, a thick volume of short stories, two novels, volumes of poetry, occasional pieces for newspapers and magazine, right? Get up every day for 70-plus years and crank out the pages, yeah. and Joe, it starts to end. I just yes, want to say, in, in his bedroom at the Elysee Hotel, he had a little manual typewriter, not a computer. There are no computers. Yeah, he hated the electrics. Then. Little manual typewriter, and above it, on a little desk, and above it were dozens of photographs of people. I said, who are all those people? And he said, oh, those are all my dead friends. I said, well, why don't you take them down? And, you know, he said, take them down. He said, they inspire me. He said, I get up every morning and type seven hours. And then the next day, I get up every morning and seven hours. And those people talk to me. They give me my energy. On a little manual typewriter, one of America's great geniuses. Great genius. And we'll never see the like of him again. No. Uh, last, thank you, thank you. Uh, last, uh, for my media presentation today, I would like to play a clip. Uh, it's called uh, Remembered Move. Uh, it is Bill Boggs who conducted this interview here in New York City. Some of you may remember the, the journalist Bill Boggs. I believe that this was done around the time of Close for a Summer Hotel. I haven't quite dated this clip yet, but he asked Tennessee how he would like to be remembered. Uh, and so this is that clip. And you know, Tennessee then goes into a ramble, but I think the ramble is also interesting, so I left the ramble in also. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tennessee Williams himself speaking to uh, how he would like to be remembered. How do you want to be remembered? As the man who has given us all this great theater, all these incredible characters, all these insights into ourselves, how do you want people to look back and remember Tennessee Williams? 
I haven't given that much thought. I hope they'll remember me favorably as a Sunday. Uh, I don't know how long literature or theater or any of the arts are going to endure because I think we're heading into, and I hope avoidably, but when is it due avoidably? I think we're heading into another nuclear holocaust because uh, the nuclear, uh, uh, what do you call them, radioactors are being distributed now to the smaller countries. And I heard some good political stuff in saying last night that probably the first nuclear blast would come from the smaller countries. Well, I have a proposal if that is the case. I think we get everything that this man has ever written, put on microfilm, and buried because it must endure. I thank you very much, <laughs> Tennessee Williams. It's been a great pleasure for us. It's always a pleasure to talk. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so at this point in time, we are going to open up the floor. I'm sure we actually have several people out here who uh, knew Tennessee, may have some Tennessee Williams stories or questions for the uh, panel. I'm going to get this gentleman in the back first. Uh, and I'm going to play uh, Oprah and Phil Donahue and run around out here with the uh, microphone. So bear with me. Yes, sir. Hi, I was wondering if anybody up on the panel could uh, shed some light on suddenly last summer. Uh, what specifically? A question about suddenly last summer. What would you like to know? Or? You can tell me about Tennessee's uh, provocativeness and how he went about it. And what his Anybody have any relation or connection to small, uh, to, I'm sorry, suddenly last summer? Yeah. Suddenly last summer? Um, is suddenly last did. summer the production that uh, kind of starts the off-Broadway movement? Is that correct? Or is that Summer in Smoke? I'm that was Summer in Smoke. That Summer in Smoke kind of starts off-Broadway as a movement, right? Yeah. Uh, any suddenly last summer stories up here? No. Oh, Penny, I'm sorry. Um, Penny Arcade, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I, is this on? Oh, I guess it is. Um, the only reason I want to say something about Suddenly Last Summer is because um, I think about it all the time. It's, it's um, one of my very, very, very favorite plays of Tennessee Williams. But one of the things that um, just recently, and this is like after years and years of seeing the film again and reading it again, I'm just so thrown by his insight into the human condition and particularly into the gay, into a, the, um, you know, what it really meant at that time to be gay and to be gay and, uh, shall we say, mentally ill, to be gay and a narcissist as the character of Sebastian is clearly a narcissist, and and the insight, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I suppose people do think of him as a um, uh, a psychoanalytical writer and a poetic psychoanalytical writer, but um, this is just a little thing for me because I'm in a room where somebody might actually care about my saying this. The absolute insight that he has into um, and, and is able to verbalize in the most beautiful and poetic language of what it really means to be in a closeted gay man, um, what it means in, in that period uh, to be, um, to have that closetedness create 
something so grim in the world. You know, I just think that that's, you know, just such an amazing accomplishment among his many accomplishments. Joe, may I say, Joe, this is, suddenly last summer to me has always been another one of the autobiographical plays. That's Edwina and and, uh, Rose, you know. Rose Rose knows things that Edwina doesn't want her to know, and she's going to have her lobotomized. Uh, One of my favorite uh, Suddenly Last Summer productions that I've seen, um, because Sebastian, this closeted gay character, is not on stage, right? Entirely off-stage character. But throughout the play, characters do say, oh, I remember Sebastian told me this. Sebastian said that. That kind of line, right? Uh, There's a group downtown called Tweed. They do this thing called the Fractured Classics, which kind of remixes of mainly classic American plays, uh, cast with downtown performers, drag performers, you name it. Uh, They did a production of uh, Suddenly Last Summer, and every time a character mentioned, oh, Sebastian told me this, Sebastian says that, the actor would go into a Truman Capote impersonation. (laughs) It brought... Sebastian to life in a way that just had never been brought to life before in the play. There was a question here, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you. I had thought of this as trivial, but I want, came here wanting to tell this because I saw American Hurrah, the John Benton Claude Attali play in 1965, and Tennessee was in the audience with a friend. And there was a joke, I think it was, I've never read the play since, but there's a joke that I think referred to one of the office workers in one of the plays hiding liquor in his desk drawer. And there was a yelp from Tennessee. Nobody else laughed. But, I mean, maybe it was a cackle. But, you know, I, but anyway, I never forgot it. Oh, and just one more thing. I worked, after he died, I was working in the bookstore in Sheridan Square, the paperback bookstore, and Kim Hunter came in and bought In the Winter of Cities. I should have given it to her. I'd think of it now. But anyway... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's interesting, this connection, that because William's work uh, was always avant-garde. Well, I mean, The Glass Menagerie is a memory play with a narrator. Come on, folks. right? It, it is not a straightforward, realistic play. Uh, but most people don't think of it in this way, so it's interesting that Tennessee was seeing this type of work. Uh, Tennessee Williams, uh, the connection that's beginning to fascinate me, and I think scholars more and more, is Tennessee's connection to the ridiculous. Because his work is clearly, I mean, ridiculous as in Charles Ludlum ridiculous. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have Black Eyed Susan with us here in the audience uh, from Charles Ludlum Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Also, is, um, you have a question, ma'am. Yeah, uh, early, early on you said that if someone was interested, you'd talk about other ideas about his death. I'll quickly run you through the uh, through the death scenarios, right? So he's found dead on the floor of the Hotel Elysee in uh, February of 1983. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is widely reported that he chokes to death on a bottle cap. My understanding from the autopsy report is that the bottle cap is in his mouth, not in his throat. You can't choke on something that's in your mouth, not in your throat, right? That's why you choke. It's lodged. Um, Dakin believes that he was murdered, the brother. Uh, Dakin, as we hear, is just as crazy as the rest of the Williamses, right? This is a long-lived crazy family, right? You live a long time, and, you know, you channel that through whatever way you do. Tennessee clearly channeled it through his writing, right, and was fortunate and talked about that. Um, Dakin believes that he was murdered because he believes that the will was about to be changed because everything, like we have said, was in Maria St. Just control. Dakin believes that he was about to change the will to give it over to Dakin, and so forces unknown had this stopped before the will could be changed. At one point in time, Dakin was offering $10,000 for information that would lead to those people, right? Any number of theories, you know, who knows? Um, 
Yes, oh, we've got all sorts of people back here. We have Thomas Keith, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, the, uh, was he the, uh, no, uh, Michael Batten, who followed Gross in that job, what's that, the uh, coroner? City coroner, essentially has written a book where he says the same thing you said about the thing that couldn't have been, he couldn't have choked on because it was in his mouth. And essentially what happened was he had reached his limit in terms of his level of toxicity. And because when people die that way, a lot of times they call it a suicide, they wanted to do something to avoid that, you know, being attached to him for, you know, his reputation forever. So they fudged this thing and six months later corrected it and said it was, it was a... Essentially, second autopsy. Second autopsy, right? Uh, the autopsy also reveals petechial hemorrhaging. Petechial hemorrhaging would be consistent with someone who was strangled, which uh, you know threw some credit to Dakin. Right? <laughs> I'm just trying to float all the theories. I'm just trying to float them all, right? <laughs> Annette. He also, um, as far as the bruises, the the result it was the result of him falling down all the time. So I think you know, Dakin had some credibility with that, but then, well. But then, you know, it, it wasn't unusual because Williams was always falling down. He was always getting drunk and, and taking Seconals and falling down. So I think the, the final result <laughs> is that he died of Seconal <coughs> intolerance, which was accidental. And John Euchre, who was with him at the time, and the coroner didn't want to make a scandal out of it and just basically said, you know, that's what happened. John Euchre was not in the apartment when he died, though. At the hotel. Was he actually there? He found him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite uh, post-Tennessee Williams stories is that someone had lent him a pair of pants uh, when he was staying at the Hotel Elysee. They retrieved them after uh, the Vasily death of Tennessee Vogue, Williams. Vasily Vogler. Yeah. And uh, got a posthumous case of crabs from Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Joe. Joe. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When you finish... I just want to say we have such an important lady here with Charlotte Moore, and I would love for Charlotte to comment on what it was like to work with him. Well, I wanted to thank you for hosting this. This has been fantastic, and the panelists for coming, just great. And uh, in the um, excerpt from the, uh, the news conference that you showed, um, he was talking about how he, how he loved actors, and you know he was in a state at the time. But I want to know, in, in your experiences, what did he say about actors? Who did he particularly like? And did he have any real feeling about the difference between acting in his plays and, and those actors who played roles in films? Because what I understand is he, he wasn't that involved in his films, the film adaptations necessarily. But uh, I'm interested in that. Thank you. I once asked Tennessee who the most sexually exciting actress was in any of his plays. And, of course, I thought he might say, you know, Jerry Page and Sweet Bird or Elizabeth Taylor. He said, Kim Hunter. He said her, the underlying sexuality of her, her portrayal of Stella in Streetcar. And, you know, it was such that they did edit out a scene from uh, Streetcar, which was on the floor for years. They just restored it because it was so sexual. It was so too steamy for, for release at the time. Hmm. But, you know, he was absolutely mad for, for, for her. And I told her that once, and she broke into tears. Uh, and uh, he loved Cherry Page. When we were ca casting clothes for a summer hotel, he would think of no one else but Cherry, which was a mistake because she was wrong for the role. I wanted him to use Piper Laurie or Tuesday Weld or Ann Margaret. No, absolutely. And he, 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 he worshipped Cherry Page. 
And you know, and he had again some of the great actresses, you know, in his place. Charlotte, I mean, right there. Yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to uh, Charlotte Moore back here. Uh, Charlotte Moore, <laughs> hi, Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte knew Tennessee Williams since she was 17 years old. Charlotte knew Tennessee Williams at the University of Washington. Washington University, I'm sorry. Uh, and goes on to direct and act in many of his pieces. Charlotte, do you have a, a story you'd like to uh, share or talk to us about today? I, 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 I knew Tennessee all my life. I knew Dakin, Rose, Miss Edwina all my life. Tennessee called, <laughs> called me Charlotte Jean because that is my name and he loved it. Um, when he was, when Tennessee was, as he called it, in prison at, at Barnes Hospital at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, I, I, he, I was the only one who could get it, who he allowed, his name was on the list, the only one. And uh, I would I visit him for for a while every day, and uh, finally I ha had to go away. And I said, "What? I had to come back to work." And I said, "What? What do you want? What can I?" He said, "I'd like uh, uh, twenty um, uh, chocolate chip cookies, and I'd like twenty phenobarbital." <laughs> <laughs> and so I gave them to him. Both. I did know, uh, I'll tell you that uh, Miss Edwina and I were quite good friends, uh, and both when she was living in her house, which was four blocks from mine, and um, when she was in two nursing homes. I saw her every time I was there at Tennessee. Finally, would not answer the phone because he was afraid somebody was going to tell him that Ed, Miss Edwina was dead. And so I would go in and I would take a Polaroid picture of her with me to prove that it was that day and I would send that to him in an envelope. I did that maybe 20 times. I have those pictures of Miss Edwina and myself and I have a picture of Tennessee and me taken by his housekeeper. What was her name? Louise? Uh, what was her name? Uh, in yeah, in, in, uh, in Key West, when I walked through the door one time, which uh, back into his studio, and it was a glass door, and I knocked myself out. And he, the dog, whom he called Lowlife, remember that dog? Is this the bulldog? He, it, was, it was that bulldog. bulldog. Jefferson Davis was the name, but he called him Lowlife. And uh, he, so there's a picture of me taken by that housekeeper, and me knocked out, the dog licking my face and Tennessee trying to revive both of us. There is that, that picture does exist. I worship the ground he walked on. As far as actresses that he liked were his favorite, I, he always told me Lorette Taylor. And I would uh, always say, why, why, tell me why I want to do that. I want to do, be her. I want to do what she did. And he said, just walk in, learn your lines, and walk in off the street and say them, and that's what she did. Yeah. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Uh, any other questions? Any other questions out here? Reactions, comments for the panelists? I uh, got one down here. Yes, sir. I was just wondering if anybody knows anything about a screenplay called The Loss of a Teardrop Earring. I think they just recently made it into a film. Or Tailjack Diamond, yeah. Uh, he's wondering about the recently uh, discovered and produced screenplay, correct? Uh, anybody? Yeah, the film has been released. The film has been released now, correct? 
Yeah. Um, and the correct title of that film is, I always get the title of that film wrong, too. Lost, uh, Lost of a Teardrop Diamond. Lost of a Teardrop Diamond. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the, the, um, the first play that he really was done, was done in New York was at the Circle in the Square, was the uh, Summer and Smoke. That's right. Uh, this is this is what leads to off Broadway as we kind of know it. Not yeah. Really. Mm. Quintero was directing mm-hmm. uh, at the at there, but there were other other groups that were also active at the same time. This is late forties, early fifties, and uh, Geraldine Page was of course in it, and it was wonderful. I saw. Mm. Okay, good. Yes, sir. You have a question here. What do you think he would write about himself? What do you think he would write about himself? Uh, well, there are hundreds of pages of the memoirs. He'd write anything. <laughs> he wouldn't. He, he wouldn't. No, he wrote, he wrote several versions of the memoirs, right. by the way. The first one was unpublishable. You know. <laughs> <laughs> have, have either of you uh, looked at those memoir pages? A bit hard? Because they're interesting, right? They're, they're, they seem to be written directly to the editor, as I recall, kind of on the day. This is what I'm thinking about. I mean, it's kind of a remarkable uh, what exist of the memoirs outside of what has been published of those uh, memoirs. Yeah, and it's huge. I mean, there are hundreds of pages of the memoirs that people have not seen to date. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of these pages. Oh, who are those? Oh, I, w- I was just wondering if, if Mitch might talk a little bit. In those last, the four or five years that you were his agent, Tennessee was uh, just as productive as he ever was, and he was, he was, he had a uh, you know, the shows at the Goodman, at the Cocteau, he had two shows. He had the one, the Tregoran, out in Vancouver. He rewrote Red Devil. Uh, was he really pushing you to get these things done? You know, was he making the deals on his... What was he doing? No, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't pushing at all. I mean, he had the plays, and, you know, and we would talk about where they should be done. I mean, Close for a Summer Hotel was obviously a major, major play, and we, that was always earmarked for Broadway. And Elliot Martin was involved as producer quite early. Uh, it's interesting that the Vancouver experience, how that came about. I got a call from uh, the university there in Vancouver, and they wanted to t- Tennessee to come and teach for a semester. And I said, are you kidding? <laughs> I said, he can barely tie his shoes in the morning. You want him to teach? I said, but I have a suggestion for you. I said, why don't you produce one of his plays and let him be an artist in residence? And he will attend rehearsals and talk to your students. And they thought that was a wonderful idea. And they said, sure, we'll do, we'll do uh, menagerie or streetcar. I said, no. I said, here's the rule. It's got to be a later play. And they said, okay, fine. And they decided to do Red Devil Battery Sign which had closed in Boston with Claire Bloom and I think Anthony Quinn, never came into New York. And you know, it's a brilliant play. They had a brilliant cast. They had a wonderful, wonderful director. And um, he showed up, and then he disappeared. I got a call from 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 the university, and they said, you know, he's not here. I said, don't worry, this happens. He will show up. And sure enough, he did. But he was very unhappy. And uh, they said, what can we do? I said, do you have a gay organization in town? And they did. And I said, have them give him a party. Well, he got to know the boys. And by the time that show opened, he was happy as a lark. I flew into Vancouver. um, And he was having a wonderful time. He had a new friend. He was reading for everybody. He loved the production. It turned out to be such a good experience that he did another new play there, which was his take on the seagull, right? 
the notebook of Dr. Tregoyan. So that had a very happy ending. He was still very productive, and there were still people out there willing to do the new work. Hmm. I, just, I just wanted to mention that you were talking about Red Devil Battery, and during the time when Tennessee was writing Green Eyes, he was a member of Circle Rep, and most people do not know that. And everything that came out of that time, including a copy of Red Devil that's never resurfaced, Tennessee sat down with Marshall Mason and revised Red Devil on a copy of uh, a script that they had that only Marshall has. It's never been seen. I mean, I have pages of this and pages of that, but there are things that during this particular time, scripts were coming out and there was... There were plans being made. All kinds of things were, were going to happen that never came to fruition. But he was very excited and very excited about new collaborations and uh, the new work he was doing. He was always revising. I mean, he revised Cat on a Hot Tin Roof so many times. And, uh, you know, close for a summer hotel. I mean, it was, it was pretty rough when he started that play. And before it opened in New, in New York... He finally got it. He got it right in the version he wrote after the play closed. And then he rewrote it for publication and screwed it up. <laughs> but, the, but the one just before the published version is wonderful. But there's so many different versions of his play. Yeah, like I said, uh, Tennessee, the word that I use is graphophilic. Uh, a later production of The Glass Menagerie, there were 1,000 to 3,000 word changes in this script. This is, like I said, <laughs> a, like a 1970-something revival of The Glass Menagerie, constantly playing with the scripts. And you mentioned uh, papers. There's still a lot of papers yet to emerge, ladies oh, yeah. and gentlemen. There are things in private collections that uh, are going to bubble in, eventually, right? So don't think that this is <laughs> over yet. We ain't seen the end of what was uh, produced and written during his lifetime. Uh, Travis has a question back here. This is actually a question for Annette and Thomas again. I know you guys are going to be here on the 22nd, but I think this question is maybe more appropriate for this panel. I wonder if you guys could talk. Well, hi, first of all, I'm Travis. I'm the director of Green Eyes. Thank you for editing it and putting together the script that we're working on. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of editing posthumous, uh, posthumous material and, and how you guys have gone about publishing it and, and that whole Can we start? Sure. Okay. The, the more complete it w was, the, b the easier it was and the better. Uh, in the case of Green Eyes, there was a finished script that, he, that Audrey Wood had submitted to New Directions after the fight. And uh, then there was a copy in UCLA of that script that Tennessee had taken and rewritten the last two or three pages. Essentially, it's where all, he, he made all those lines that overlap at the end. And he, he heightened the sense of urgency in it. And so we took that. Uh, whenever there was a production done, for, for example, with uh, Something Cloudy, Something Clear, I worked with Eve Adams, and she had her script, the stage manager's script, and we went over it very carefully. And she was able to say, yes, he was very insistent that there be music at this moment, or no, that was something we added, or we skipped because we didn't have the money, you know, put it back. And so it's, you know, it's... it's, it's <laughs> Sometimes it's a certain amount of research, and then sometimes the, the scripts, like with House, it was House Not Meant to Stand, it was pretty clear it was just it was the stage manager's final script. And uh, as you mentioned, Tennessee had several drafts of everything. Um, uh, yeah, he was still rewriting Streetcar in the 70s. He didn't like the conversation between 
Blanche and Stella. Um, so there are draft versions of that. But there were multiple drafts, and so we would have to look at them and see um, sequentially what was he thinking, what did he want to keep, what did he want to change. He would change things and then change them again. So we tried to be as faithful as we could to what he intended. Um, but there were pages that were a mess. They were out of order. Um, we'd have to meet. We'd have to talk with people who produced the plays. What did he think at this point? What was he doing here? Um, if there were stage directions that were done but not in the script, but people remembered and said, oh, he did this, he wanted this, we'd have to put those in um, to make it easier for actors. So it was a very... And also what was the most recent Exactly, what was the most recent. Um, he sometimes changed a version and then went back to the older one. So one of the first things we had to do was pick which plays um, were complete in some sense, and then look at the various drafts and the various versions and find them. And sometimes they weren't in archives. Sometimes they were under somebody's bed. Sometimes they were in new directions at the files there. So, Just to give you an idea, uh, actually, I, since I didn't see the 1980 production of Mr. Merriweather, I didn't... I always liked the play. There's a video. In 1980? There's a videotape. Oh, no. The one that you said was a real stinker. Actually, I always liked it reading it. And uh, that was one that he really did pull out of a trunk and give to them so they could open that Key West Center. And when Annette and I found the copy, it turns out there's a prologue. And we don't know if he didn't give it to them or they thought, you know what, we're not going to do this. But it's the whole cast standing around and this voice out of nowhere saying to them, this is an entertainment. <laughs> and, and there's this dialogue back and forth with the voice of the playwright and, and the, the character of the daughter is saying, oh, who wants to listen to this old apparition? He's dead anyway. <laughs> and we assume that uh, William Prosser didn't want to uh, do that for Mr. Williams, who was coming to the opening, so they skipped it. Mm-hmm. We went ahead and put it in. Yeah, I don't know. They also le- he also would write letters about what his intent was. I mean, I have a letter from him about Close for a Summer Hotel saying, if I, catch the sur- if I catch the sudden subway before I get around to revising Close for a Summer Hotel, this is the way the, the first act should end. And then he gives specific instructions. So there's another guide into what his intent was. And then he would change it, though. Yeah, yeah, then he would change his mind, of course. Yes, sir. When I was at the Neighborhood Playhouse back in the 80s, uh, one of my final productions uh, that I performed in was called uh, The Purification, which is a one-act play dealing with incest in New Mexico back in the 1800s, I believe. This is such a bizarre topic for a play. Could any of you shed any light on why he would write a play not only set in the 19th century, but also having to do with incest? Well... I have to tell you, I love this play. And it was produced on television with Anne Revere. And, you know, I mean, why not? I mean, number, I mean, look, he did cannibalism and suddenly last summer and homosexuality and you name it. I mean, why, I mean, what's, what's off limits? But it's a, it, number one, the play is written in verse, you know, which falls right into the poet thing. And it is a gorgeously written play. And basically it's about a rancher who has killed a young woman in Texas and they are in the middle of a grout and the psych in the back is just blood red and as we turn as it turns out it's a slow reveal of a family secret and the secret is she's having an affair with her own brother and finally at the end of the play I believe the rancher is killed and the moment he is the skies open and the rains come and 
the whole time Anne Revere sits on the, on the side of the stage like a Greek, Greek chorus and talks in, in this wonderful poetry about the tainted stream is bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. It was, an, it was an affair that could not go on and it had dire consequences and the tainted stream was there for all of us to see. And she keeps that. It, it, it's such a gorgeous piece of work. And it does what Tennessee loved. Tennessee loved symbols. The Seven Descents of Myrtle, where she comes down the staircase seven times. Battle of Angel is fraught with symbols. I mean, that became Orpheus Descending. That was his first play that closed out of town. You know, and it, it's just one of his richest, most poetic work condensed into a little one act. And I wish I could find a copy of that television film. I think it was done for the NET Play of the Week. I'm sure it exists. Anybody know where a copy of that is laying around? UCLA, I bet, has um, it. The Purification, Museum of Broadcasting, right? Um, the Purification, for some reason, always sticks in my mind. It was first done as a puppet play. I don't know why I've got that in my head, but there's, I, frankly, it was a puppet production that started off, right? Okay. Um, any last uh, questions from the audience here? Yes, um, he, he was alive when Close for a Summer Hotel was done. Somebody yeah. said that, that his last Broadway show while he was alive was Vue Carre. Oh, no. So it was oh, not, no. That's not true. No, Close was the yeah. last one. I, I guess my general question about Tennessee Williams is always, <clears throat> did his later works become more and more and more extreme because he wasn't getting critical and popular No, and they didn't or? become more extreme. I mean... Again, I keep going back to a lovely Sunday for Kurt, Kurt but that and close okay. for a summer ter- or two. Make creep that's a now. very beautiful little jewel box cl- play about a relationship. It's a small play about a small subject, but it is absolutely lovely. No, he didn't change. The audience around him changed. It's like you know, you introduce a song and they say, "Oh, he's doing the same old stuff." Clive Barnes said it very well. He said, "You know, we have a very peculiar way of treating our treasured playwrights in this country." First we put them on a pedestal and then we throw dirt at them. He was doing what he always did, but in the audience mind it had become cliched. And this is why the space between the time he died and now, look what's happened to the career, it's grown. Because he was as good at the end as he was at the beginning. People were just going, well, you know, it's not streetcar, no. No, the, the work was there, the, and, the, no, and the quality was there. Absolutely, I agree. I've, I've always considered the work extreme from the start. Like I said, The Glass Menagerie is a narrator and a memory play. Don't forget. Um, so I think the work's always been extreme, and he was just keeping up with theatrical times and experimentation. Uh, there are video clips of him saying, you know, I don't want to write what people want me to write. I want to write what I want to write. You know, don't put me in a box. Expand. I should be able to write and do what I want to do as a uh, artist. There was one last question out here, and then we're going to wrap it up for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Apart from the play that you just mentioned was written in verse, and regarding other plays apart from plot or characterization, would you say say there's a play or two that are particularly noteworthy for the poetry, for the language more than anything else? Well, Menagerie. I mean, those wonderful monologues in Menagerie. And, you know, and Tennessee very often takes off lights. But, you know, even the one-liners, the one that I quoted. Tennessee, by the way, would do that in his private life. He would suddenly come out with something that you would believe was from a play. He got pissed off at his secretary one night. He had a wonderful man working for him by the name of J. Leo Coe. And I remember this because I wrote it down. I thought I would never forget it and have it. And he he turned to Jay and he said, you know, Jay, 
There are some people in this world for whom human kindness is a natural instinct, and then there are other people for whom human kindness is an instinct that is as far away and distant as the most distant of the distant planets. And I thought, boy, you should be a playwright. (laughs) (laughs) So ladies and gentlemen, on that note, let's close the kindness of strangeness. Thank you all very much for coming here today. Please come back next Saturday for our panel with Tennessee Williams directors and the following Saturday for our panel with Tennessee Williams scholars. Thank you very much.